And we're very glad to have our brother Adam Kennedy with us this evening. Our brother's a student in the Whitfield College of the Bible, and we welcome him here in our Saviour's precious name. He's a member of the Sandown Congregation, and I think our brother's been here before to preach, but we're looking forward to having our brother come and preach the Word of God this evening. We're going to ask him to come at this stage and bring God's Word to our hearts. Well, can you turn with me tonight in the Word of God to the book of 2 Corinthians, please? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And as you turn there tonight, can I just thank Mr. Dean for leading the meeting? It's good to be here tonight. Good to reunite fellowship with you all. We're making the comment this morning that as I was coming in tonight, that Mr. Me and Mr. Dean maybe perhaps were following each other. I was in Dungannon this morning and was sitting under his preaching. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the word of God to my hearts. But perhaps for Mr. Dean, it'll be more endurance rather than enjoyment. But we trust that we will be blessed as we come to the gospel tonight in 2 Corinthians and chapter 8. And we'll take up our reading in this chapter from the opening verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance, and knowledge and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you, who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. And we end a reading at the end of verse 12. And let's just look to the Lord now for his blessing as we come to the preaching of his word tonight. Our God and our Father in heaven, we come before thee in prayer this evening. And we thank thee already for a sense of thy presence being with us tonight in the house of God. Lord, we thank thee for the hymns that we have been singing, Lord, that have pointed us to the Saviour and to the great cross work where, Lord, you paid the debt of sin. And, Lord, tonight we pray now as we come to thy word and to the preaching of it, Lord, I pray for thy spirit to be upon me tonight. Lord, I pray you would empty me of self. And, Lord, may I speak as thus saith the Lord. And, Lord, tonight we pray for all those who would listen on, both in the building, but, Lord, also online. 
We pray that the word of God, as it would go forth, that it would speak and penetrate into each and every heart. Lord, come and uplift Christ and then draw man unto himself. Lord, glorify thy Son tonight and we will give him all of the praise and all of the glory for he is worthy. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. As we come to the book of 2 Corinthians tonight, we are, of course, coming to the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote unto the church that was in Corinth. And very much the book of 2 Corinthians, the theme flows on from the same theme that was evident in 1 Corinthians. We read in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians how Paul had to address the errors and the division that had came amongst the people in the church of Christ. And so Paul, from the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he urged the church to have unity together, one with another. And I'm sure we're well familiar tonight with the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, where Paul could write, but we preach Christ crucified. It is Christ and the message of the gospel that is the one thing that ought to unite us together as the people and the church of God. And the gospel of Christ is a subject that we read much in the writings of Paul's in his various epistles and letters that he wrote to the churches. He clearly loved to speak about the gospel and about his Savior to those who were saved, but also to those who were lost. And of course, tonight, if we are Christians, that ought to be our desire, that we would speak forth the gospel of Christ to others in our lives. And so as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read here how Paul is writing to the church about a very practical matter. He's speaking about the need to give financial aid to the Jews that were in Jerusalem. We read in verse 1 of chapter 8 that he speaks about the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How there were other churches in that region that were given money to the Jews in order to help them and to bring them relief in their time of need. And so in this opening verses of chapter 8, Paul calls the church at Corinth also to give financially to the work of God and to fellow believers in Christ. As he says at the end of verse 8, it would be to prove the sincerity of your love. And so here, Paul tells them about the need to give to these Jews. But as he deals with this matter, very practical in nature, in verse number 9, it seems that Paul, again, is brought to consider the gospel of Christ. Because as he thinks about this idea of giving financially, uh, materially, his mind then turns to a spiritual giving. And of course, it is the giving of Christ, the giving of his life, a ransom for many. And so tonight, our subject is the Christ-centered gospel. The Christ-centered gospel as it's found for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and the words of verse number 9. And so tonight, we want to look at this verse and see what can we learn about Christ. First of all, we see that there is Christ's person. Christ's person. Because as Paul begins to write verse number 9, first of all, before he speaks about the work of Christ, he wants to uplift his person. He says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you'll be aware, 
in the gospel, in the scriptures, there are many terms that are used to speak about Christ. We read titles such as the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, many names given to Christ. Yet here, Paul uses a common term, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a term that Paul used in, in the Philippi when he was in jail. And the jailer came on to him and Silas as they were bound and said, what must I do to be saved? In Acts 16, 31, Paul could say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so this is a term that is used, but there's great teaching in this name because it tells us about the person and the nature. See, first of all, that he's called Lord. Lord. That's a term that shows us the authority and the supremacy of the Savior. Because Christ is God, he is Lord. And he's not merely an earthly Lord that has limited power, but he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is almighty, the one who is supreme. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, we read, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. And so in this title, we are reminded that Christ is Lord. He is supreme. He is God, and beside him there is none other. He's called Lord, but he's also called Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And of course, that name, Jesus, is the earthly name of Christ. That was the name given to him at the moment of his incarnation, the moment of his virgin birth. You will know the words of Matthew 1, 21. It says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so the name Jesus has the meaning of redemption. He was the one going to save his people from their sins. And that's a reminder of the person of Christ tonight. It's a reminder that in order for Christ to come and to redeem us from sin, that Christ had to become man. He had to come into this world. He had to be born. And we read in the beginning of John's gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And so we're reminded about the fact that, yes, Christ is Lord. He is God. But he's also Jesus. He's also man. He's God and man in one person. He's the Lord Jesus, but he's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. And that word Christ in the Greek, it means he is the anointed one. It was Christ, of course, the second person of the Trinity that was spoken about in the Old Testament. All of the prophets looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. He was the Messiah that had long been awaited for by the Jews. And yet now he had come. He was the one that was anointed, the one who was chosen by the Father to come and obtain salvation for us. Of course, the Jew at that time rejected such a message. They believed that Christ was a mere man, a mere blasphemer, a false prophet. And yet here Paul says, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He has come and he has brought salvation to his people. And of course, tonight, the message which we preach, it all centers on Christ. 
We need to be reminded tonight about his person. That is a doctrine under attack today by many false religions who try to deny the deity of the Lord Jesus. Yet remember that he was God, he was man, and they came together in one. Two natures in one person. The Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Christ have to be God and man? Well, it was simply because in Eden, when man fell into sin, man was estranged. Man was cut off. Man was separated from God. Man could not earn his way back onto God. And so if Christ was to bring man back and reconcile him, Christ had to represent both God and man, the separated parties brought together in one. And so he's the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Christ's person. But secondly, tonight, we then go on to see Christ's preeminence. Christ's preeminence. You will go on in the verse and we read, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he was rich. We can also read those words tonight in the original as, Though he was abounding in riches. And so the reference itself Whilst Paul, as we said in this chapter, he was speaking about the need to give financial money. He's not talking about the riches, the mere temporal riches of Christ. But he's speaking rather of his attributes, his blessings, his perfection, since he is God. And you'll notice here that Paul uses the past tense. He says, though he was rich. And Paul's not saying here that right now Christ is no longer rich. Of course, we know Christ ascended back to glory. Christ tonight enjoys all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's reigning over all. He's interceding for his people. But instead, when Paul uses this past tense that he was rich, he's speaking about the time before Christ came into the world. That period of time in which Christ was in glory before his incarnation. We're reminded that Christ was begotten. Christ was not created. Christ had always been. He always will be. He's eternal and everlasting. And so in glory he has all spiritual riches. You may ask tonight, what are the riches that Christ enjoys? Well, Christ is equal to the Father. Christ is immutable. He does not change. Christ is infinite in his power. He has perfect knowledge of all things. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. And so that can lead us to think about two matters of his preeminence. First of all, that Christ's preeminence is unequaled. It's unequaled. Because there is no man on the face of this earth who enjoys or occupies such a position as Christ does. Now, there are those tonight and we may look around, there may be those on earth who amass a great wealth, a great fortune, much reputation, and to us they seem like mighty men, and yet they are unequal to the riches of Christ. Of course, one day all of their riches, their wealth, it will fade, it will die, it will go to the dust, and yet Christ cannot lose his glory. You think about the rich young farmer in Luke's Gospel. He was a man who succeeded in life, a man who believed he had many years to enjoy his wealth and his possessions, a man who was going to pull down his barns, build bigger. He was going to take his ease. He was going to eat, drink, 
He was going to be merry, but we know the story in Luke's gospel that God came that night and God said to that man very personally, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. A man who made many plans for life, but no plans for eternity. And therefore, yes, he was a man with temporal riches, but he lost it all in an instant, all gone. And then what? His soul was lost in eternity. And so we're reminded tonight that Christ's preeminence is unequaled. No matter what man has in this world, it will not last forever. And therefore, we realize that Christ cannot lose any of his riches. They are everlasting and they are eternal. And so Christ's preeminence is unequaled, but it's also unlimited. It's unlimited. Because tonight there is no limit that we can place on the power of God. There's a limit on our lives. There's a limit on what we are able to do, but that's not so with God. We don't have control over all things. We don't have perfect knowledge of what is ahead, but God does. And that's so important when it comes to the gospel tonight. Because if we come to the gospel, we see a God that not only planned salvation, but a God who was able to obtain salvation. It seemed humanly impossible when man had fallen that he would be able to be back to God. And yet where it seemed impossible from a human perspective, yet God made a way. And the scriptures remind us constantly of the ability of God. He's able to move in a miraculous, a wondrous way. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so there's nothing too hard for God tonight. That should bring encouragement to us, the children of God. We consider the world we live in. We consider those in our families, those we're close to, and it seems that there's no reaction to the gospel. God is able to move. God is powerful tonight to bring conviction to the hearts of men and to save through sin. And so tonight we're reminded that Christ is rich. All spiritual blessings, all wealth. And Paul wrote it this way in Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so Paul reminds us of Christ's person and also of Christ's preeminence. But thirdly tonight we go on to see Christ's poverty. Christ's poverty. Because now we learn that there's a great contrast made in this verse. He says that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. And Paul's bringing across this argument. He's preaching the gospel in this verse in many ways. And he's doing it with great effect. In essence, what Paul is saying when he writes these words is this same God who was all-powerful, this same God who is supreme, that one who enjoys all riches, that one who has all spiritual blessings, it is that same God who became poor. It is Christ who suffered the loss of all things. He became poor in order that he would come and obey and do the will of his Father. What a wonder that is tonight, that Christ would become poor. There's great, it highlights the great humility of Christ. We see the Savior's humility there because that is what Paul is seeking to emphasize, the humiliation of Christ. 
Since Christ was the one, as we said, he was anointed, he was the one chosen to bring salvation, he had to humble himself in order to be the saviour of men. He had to come into this world. He had to be born of a woman, made under the law. He had to suffer in this life. And again, the word of God, it's full of verses that tell us about Christ's humility. And perhaps there's no greater tonight that we could turn to than Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me tonight to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, Paul, speaking to the believers, telling them how they are to live humble lives, but showing them that the only way to live a true, humble life as a Christian is to follow the example of the Savior. Philippians 2, and the verse number 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Again, do not see the pattern here in verse 6. Paul reminds us of the deity of Christ. He was equal of God. He was God himself. But in verse number 7, he turns to show us his humiliation, that he made himself of no reputation. And Paul reminds us of the fact that this was voluntary. All of the work of redemption was done voluntarily and willingly by Christ. It wasn't that Christ was forced or obliged to come into this world, but instead we read that he made himself of no reputation. He took upon him. He did it willingly. And you know, as we read those words in verse number seven, that he made himself of no reputation. Those are words which literally mean he emptied himself. You think about a cup with water in it. You pour it out, the water falls out, it empties the glass. That's the meaning, that's the image there that Christ emptied or poured out himself. And sadly, there's been much misinterpretation, misunderstanding about those verses. There'll be those who will tell us that those words must mean that when Christ became man, that he lost some of his attributes. He was no longer God when he became a man. But that's not the meaning here of Paul's writing. We ought to guard against such false teaching because what Paul is saying here when he made himself of no reputation is that Christ hid his deity. His deity was filled in human flesh. It was covered by human flesh. Isaiah reminds us that Christ would come on to his own and his own would receive him not. And that's exactly what happened. They saw no beauty. They saw no comeliness that they should desire him. And he was cast off as being a mere man. That was the humility that Christ endured. And as we think about his poverty, of course, we think about the cross. But we must remember all of Christ's life from the moment of his birth to his death was a life of humiliation. It's a life of poverty. But ultimately, it did result in Calvary. If you're still in Philippians 2, you will see that Paul brings us to that in verse number 8. Because he says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The Savior's humility, but sin's penalty. Sin's penalty. In Philippians 2, verse 8, that little word, even, is quite interesting. 
And of course, every word in Scripture has a meaning. It's there for a reason. And that little word, even, it's showing to tell us that, yes, Christ was obedient unto death, but even so, the death of the cross. In other words, Christ was willing to die what was, in biblical times, the most painful and the most shameful way of death, crucifixion, which was reserved for the worst criminals who had committed the worst crimes and those transgressors who had done terrible things were crucified. And so Christ chose the most humiliating way to die, of course, on the cross. Christ, as we said, who enjoyed all glory, yet he came to this earth. He set his face, as it were, as a flint to go to Calvary. Christ, who suffered at the hands of men, the Roman soldiers, the chief priests, the scribes, beat the body of Christ, mocked him, spat at him, scourged his body, nailed him to a tree. Oh, he endured much at the hands of men. But consider what he even endured at the hands of his father, where he could cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God forsaken of God. And tonight we do not understand such words. Yet in those words we see the true suffering, the true poverty of Christ. Of course, when we think about the idea of becoming poor, it must tell us there's a payment that is made. You go out tomorrow and you make a purchase in the shop. You'll have to give money over to get that item you want to buy. And of course, we're reminded here that Christ became poor. And we're reminded that there is a payment here that has been made. Not money that's been given, but Christ's own blood that has been given in the payment. First Peter 1, 18 and 19, we're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot and without blemish. And so there Christ paid the ultimate price. It was the price of man's debt, which was death. The penalty of sin brings death. And so Christ, as we have said, we sung it tonight, we sang that Jesus paid it all. And there, as we consider the cross, we see how the penalty was placed and Christ paid that penalty to the full. The debt was cleared. One sacrifice for sin forever and the work was done. It is finished, he cried. The work of redemption, complete. The finished work of Christ. And so there, he paid the debt of sin. And if we're saved tonight, we can say, he paid the debt he did not owe. And therefore tonight, dear Christian, if you're saved, can you not rejoice in the gospel, a reminder to us of what the Lord has done for us, that Christ became poor. Maybe there's an unbeliever tonight here, and maybe the question that's going in your head is, why did Christ suffer? Why did Christ come and become poor and die in such a way? Well, if we come back to our verse, we're going to see the answer to those questions because we've seen Christ's person, his preeminence, and his poverty. But finally tonight, we see Christ's purpose. What was the reason, reason for Christ's death? Well, at the end of verse 9 in 2 Corinthians 8, it says that ye, through his poverty, might be rich. 
Again, it says in that verse, for your sakes, he became poor. Paul is emphasizing that Christ has died for the benefit, for the good of sinful man. For those who had already believed, he was writing to believers. He was reminding them of what Christ had done for them. Don't forget what Christ has done for you, dear Christian. Constantly remind yourself and glory in the fact that Christ has died and paid for your sin. But it was a message not only for the saved, but the lost. A message of hope. A message to show them that there was a way to be saved and forgiven from their sin. That he through his poverty might be rich. You remember that we said Paul was writing about the need to give practically to give financial money to the Jews in Jerusalem. Yet what he shows is that there was one who gave over more than any man has ever to give. There was a Savior who came and gave his own life so that we, through him, through confessing our sins, through calling upon him in salvation, that we should be saved, made rich in him. We're reminded in the gospel constantly as well that the sinner is spiritually bankrupt, Maybe tonight you come to the house of God and you think you can earn salvation by your works. You think by reading your Bible, by praying to the Lord, by attending the church of God here week by week that somehow you'll get into glory your own way. No, the Bible reminds us that Christ is the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can't pay our way with money into heaven such as the Roman Catholic Church would sadly tell us that we have to pay, we have to work and work and work to gain our salvation. That is not the case. The case is if you trust in Christ tonight, that you're saved and saved for all eternity for what he has done. Do you not see tonight that the gospel we've preached, it centers, it culminates all in Christ. Nothing more, nothing less, Christ and Christ alone. And so the wonder to our hearts must be this, that even in his poverty, that we through him can be made rich. In salvation, that shows us how when we're saved, all of the blessings are given over to us. The righteousness of Christ is given. The peace of God is given. We're adopted in the family of God. We're the sons of God. We are sanctified day by day. The Spirit helps us to grow in grace, to hate sin more, to follow after Christ. And of course, the great benefit to know that when death comes, that we will go to be with Christ. Do you have that assurance tonight? How would it be for you tonight if death came your way? Do you have the assurance to know it's well with your soul? Are you saved tonight? Have you been to the Savior? Do you know what it is to be spiritually rich through him? I'm not asking tonight how much money you have, how successful you are in life. I'm asking, do you have the greatest gift that this world can offer? The gift of salvation through him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we read about an inheritance that is incorruptible. It's undefiled, it fadeth not away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. Is such an inheritance yours tonight? Is salvation guaranteed? Is the Lord reserving a place 
in heaven for you. Yes, you might have wealth. Yes, you might prosper in this life. But remember, if you don't have Christ, then you have nothing at all. The only thing we take out of this world when we die is our soul. Our soul that never dies. And so tonight, do you see the importance? Do you see the priority that there is to get right with God, to search your hearts? That is the Christ-centered gospel. It is a gospel that centers on the grace, the mercy of God. But you see tonight, there's a condition placed on you. It says that ye might be rich. Might be rich. It's not guaranteed. There's a conditional sense placed there. You see tonight in the gospel, there is something that we must do if we are to be saved. There's an action that the sinner must perform. He must come. He must acknowledge that he has done wrong. He must see that he's unable to save himself. He must come and confess it openly before the Lord realize what he is, see his own inability. Not only see his own inability, but sees Christ's ability. He sees Christ's power, that Christ is able to save me tonight. The beauty is, if you come, you cry unto the Lord that he will save you. And so tonight, I trust that all of us in this meeting, we can say that we have been made spiritually rich through the poverty of the Son of God. If so, then we can have hope tonight to know that one day we will go to be of glory, we will enjoy all eternity in the light of his presence. And dear sinner, tonight you can have that prospect if you come to him. You give your life over to Christ, you'll not regret it. He will make you, he will give you those spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. May the Lord be pleased to use these words to challenge and to speak to our hearts tonight. A hand back over to Mr. Dean. Do thank the Lord's servant for bringing the word tonight to our hearts, and we think of that great definition of grace, great riches at Christ's expense, and we do rejoice in the riches that is given to us. We're made heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and it's well beyond our understanding or our comprehension, the greatness of the riches that God gives to those that trust in him. And I hope that you trust in him tonight, that you're going to that place of riches, into that place of eternal contentment, into that place of joy, and that you're not heading to that place of eternal unrest and that a place of eternal hatred and that place of eternal pain. You come and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. We're going to sing a couple of verses of 273 in closing. I hear thy welcome voice that calls me Lord to thee for cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary. And we'll sing verses 1 and 2, and let's stand as we sing.
Our loving God and our gracious Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy precious word. We thank thee for the great riches that come at Christ's expense. We know the one who was, uh, became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. And we thank thee for those great riches that are given in the gospel. Bless thy word tonight. We pray that thou wouldst take each one to their homes in safety. Cause thy word to abide in hearts. And we pray that there might be fruit as a result of thy word going forth tonight. Bless tonight. Take us to our homes in safety. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with thy people both now and in the incoming days. For Jesus' sake, amen.